Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, coming up on today's episode, we are talking space wars. As if we didn't have enough to worry about. Uh, <laughs> everything that's happening on Earth. Uh, there's growing concern about how do you police the planets and uh, prevent outbreaks of conflict in the skies above our heads. That's a big thing coming up in just a moment. But first, it's our columnist panel. No uh, Finkelvich this week, because Danny Finkelstein is off. Uh, I don't know what he's doing, scuba diving or something. Uh, so instead, we've got David Ivanovich of The Times and Katie Balls from The Spectator. Let's start with uh, this sort of growing idea of there being tensions between uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak and what the pair of them are up to. You've uh, been looking at this polling, uh, which looks at how Boris Johnson is doing compared to other uh, his cabinet colleagues. Meanwhile, lo and behold, Rishi Sunak scratched across the front of the Times today. Go back to the office if you want to get on. Um, what's, what's really going on behind the scenes, Katie? I think there's definitely some tensions between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, to state the obvious, um, but particularly on things like spending. And I think we're going to see more and more of that ahead of the spending review in the autumn. I think ultimately the Prime Minister wants to spend more money than the Chancellor is comfortable with. And therefore, we're going to be heading into a row, lively debate over how they do that. Um, but then I think there is an issue in the sense that because Rishi Sunak is still riding fairly high in terms of approval ratings, whereas Boris Johnson is seeing his take a dip, um, is now also playing into a wider narrative of who will the next Tory leader be, even though there's not currently a vacancy, there's not expected to be one anytime soon. And therefore, I think Rishi Sunak finds himself in the unfortunate situation that anything he does, which is slightly interesting, uh, falls into he's on manoeuvres. And recent con home polls, which show uh, Rishi Sunak the favourite uh, to be the next Tory leader and also Boris Johnson falling on personal approvals, are not helpful, I would say, to number 11 right now. 
David, uh, maybe Boris Johnson shouldn't, uh, you know, just lump this, given that he he maybe has some experience of uh, when a prime uh, a prime minister in number ten has to put up with uh, someone else who's very popular who's constantly on manoeuvres. Um, something that uh, Theresa May and David Cameron uh, had uh, long experience of. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about the Mills and Boone earlier, what, what mine would be. And I, I, my title was, I promised you the Rose Garden. And it's about how, it's how, about how a chancellor and a prime minister are secretly in love. But they want to throw everybody off the scent because it's really necessary because they have these kind of big images. And actually, Rishi and Boris are an item. But... They want desperately need Katie Balls to suggest they're at daggers draw, so that, <laughs> that so it kind of throws everybody I'm off being the scent. And I, yes, I think this is a very, I think this is a very kind of modern story, and 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 the contrast between them would kind of provide the counterpoints. Now, I was I, I was entertained very much by uh, Katie's piece, not least because it contained the sentence, the Westminster rumor mill, um, the phrase, and I thought. What is the Westminster rumour mill, uh, actually? Because I never quite... I, I once was a sketch writer and people would talk about the Westminster rumour mill and I never really quite understood what the Westminster... And, and, and did it matter? And then we've referred to this poll of Conservative members done by Conservative Home, which I think has some kind of... And I think, how many Conservative members are there and what are we actually talking about? By the time I got to the end of these questions... I realised I didn't really have any useful opinion about it at all myself. I just had a series of questions about what it all meant. I think the probably when you were a sketch writer, the West, Westminster rumour mill was with, with the people talking about you, David, and you didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I, <laughs> think that, I think that's quite unlikely. I mean, I was I was in Westminster for for example. I mean, this shows how long ago the day that Sir Geoffrey Howe made his speech about uh, uh, about Margaret Thatcher, and I don't think anybody cared very much about me then. <laughs> so go on then, uh, Katie. Answer David's questions. I think the Westminster rumour mill is effectively uh, what people are saying privately in person and on WhatsApp when they should be writing publicly about much more serious issues. Um, so, so it tends to be what people want to talk about, but they can't actually get away with talking about um, in, in a more formal setting because it is rather petty. <laughs> is there a, is there any? I mean, I suppose the thing is that, that Rishi Sunak was was put in as a sort of uh, as a stooge, really. Sajid Javid quit as Chancellor uh, just over a year ago because of Dominic. It all seems like a long time ago now. Dominic Cummings wanted you know more control over the Treasury and to yeah. sack uh, Sajid Javid's spads. And this was amazingly it was one of the big stories in the in the whole country at one point, um, all pre pre pandemic, of course. Um, and so uh, uh, Sajid Javid quits. Rishi Sunak goes along with it, and far from being a stooge, he's basically unsack unsackable and untouchable, isn't he, Katie? I mean, he's unsackable until he's sacked, really, isn't he? Um, but I think that it's hard for Boris Johnson to get rid of a second chancellor. And I don't think we're anywhere near that. But I do think we're in a bit of a situation where, obviously, Dominic Cummings, every time he speaks and is critical of the prime minister, critical of Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, and then 
only has praise for Rishi Sunak, I wouldn't say that uh, helps relations between number 10 and number 11. Um, but I think we are seeing Rishi Sunak throw his weight around a bit. He is now, um, I think, feels very established as Chancellor. And I think that means we're going to get more of these interventions. And because Rishi Sunak seems to land them in a smoother way, and also I think in terms of getting his agenda through, if you look at foreign aid, that was a treasury plan to get that through the Commons and it worked. Whereas number 10 keep having to make all these U-turns. And I just think that is creating a little bit of uh, bad will, which we only see bubble up now and then, but you're starting to see the makings of something that could get a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, that, de- that definitely rings true, doesn't it? Because we know that the big and uh, really difficult decisions are mostly uh, financial ones, which are, which are to come. And we also know that Johnson's instinct is to say, yes, absolutely up for that. Spend some money on that garden bridge, you know, new airport etc find the money uh bish bash bosh it can all be done and then along comes somebody to say to him actually we don't have the money you can't do that there are better priorities and so on and he is then forced into the situation of telling the people he said we can do all this to that actually we can't do it at all and wishing that um somebody else was available to say it and all this is to and a lot of this is to come and you can see it in just about every kind of major uh, major field i mean let's just take an example of what we call kind of leveling up one of the big problems problems in some of the country in some of the parts that we call the red wall has been the effect of austerity upon local council spending because they were more dependent upon it than other people were now unless they're prepared to put that money back in some in some sort of way then the problems there just get worse essentially and the relocating industries are really difficult and awkward business and a very kind of hit and miss business whereas let's say ramping up council expenditure so that you can increase the number of people employed locally in services is actually a much quicker way of of dealing with it and yet the government won't do it and that's all to come so it's I think actually you're absolutely right, Katie. This is just a story of tension now and much more tension to come. The only problem is it would exist with any chancellor, really. So he doesn't solve the problem at any point by saying, let's get rid of this chancellor. This may be the most emollient chancellor he's going to get. The the only thing I would say there is I think that uh, I, I think Rishi Sunak is more worried about inflation than some others in the cabinet and the Tory party. So I think it's always going to be a problem, as you say, David, with uh, Boris Johnson, because he does want to spend so much. He doesn't like saying no to people. There's lots of, uh, and the infrastructure projects particularly, I think, um, lead to the most eye-rolling. But I do think there are some in the cabinet who see this more as kind of a, a wartime debt and a more relaxed about borrowing than Rishi Sunak. So you can see perhaps Perhaps what they might think that, but there'd still be the same theme round about. One of the, I was, a week or so ago, I was chatting to somebody, uh, senior in the Treasury, and they were saying that we always get accused of, oh, you know, Rishi Sunak has been, uh, you know, he's beholden to Treasury orthodoxy. I said, it's not Treasury orthodoxy, it's maths. That is maths. Beholden <laughs> uh, to maths. Yes, he's beholden to the idea that you can't spend more than you've got, or, you know, at some point things have to add up. Uh, and they, they are, you know, and B- Boris Johnson does not appear to be beholden to maths that he wants well, no, low taxes no, and high spending. Well, he isn't in any aspect of his life beholden to maths or or reality, is he? And it seems to, in, and up until now, it seems to to work for him. He lives in a kind of virtual world that the rest of us couldn't, uh, well, virtual world made real, which the rest of us couldn't countenance, as was evidenced by the announcement uh, of the very good news for, for his wife Carrie last week. This is not a situation most of us could conceive of. 
Conceive was a bad word in this situation, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> we'll let I it go. Really I don't think anyone noticed. I don't think anyone noticed. I think we can get away with it. I think we can get away with it. Um, the other thing I want, and it's a sort of complete change of, uh, of Tony for life, but there's been a lot of... Um, I mean, we seem to be back where we almost started in terms of, Af of Afghanistan, David. Um, you know, you've got William Hague writing in the in the Times today about his concern about what's happening in uh, in Afghanistan and and the the, the growing uh, the, the resurgence of the Taliban. Um, uh, government's forces are struggling. You know, as the Taliban uh, tries to take hold in several cities. Uh, and what does Britain do now, having sort of been there 10, 20 years, 20, coming up to 20 years ago now? Um, what should Britain's role be now in Afghanistan, do? Well, well, we have, given that the, the we are where we are, I mean, I, I just have to say that when Joe Biden and before him Trump were talking about drawing down troops, there was no talk of what would happen if the Taliban took over. I mean, people say, well, that's going to be the end of the war. And I remember kind of, arguing and tweeting out saying it's not the end of the war I mean it just isn't there if it was as that if it were that simple we wouldn't uh, ever have been there in the first place um uh, and I think it's pretty obvious to most policymakers in the west that a full Taliban takeover of the cities leads to two things firstly it leads to a vast number of uh, added to the uh to refugees in the region and out of the region, which becomes a different kind of problem for the West pretty rapidly, because we've seen that before. Uh, but more to the point, for people in Afghanistan and uh, uh, and for us in terms of security, it leads to the takeover or by an extremely radical and very unstable force of a country in a very delicate, delicate reason. There's no reason to believe. I mean, people had this kind of fantasy that somehow or other there was the new improved talent at Doha, who kind of spoke extremely nicely and were going to allow good things to happen. It's rapidly become clear there is no such body. It doesn't, it doesn't exist like that. It's a fantasy. So the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to offer as much military support to the Afghan government as we possibly can, short of getting uh, a large number of troops back. And we're going to have to uh, plan for the possibility of a significant influx of people from Afghanistan who are partially there as a result of things that we and others have done. Uh, Katie, are you sort of aware of the government, uh, the UK government, being particularly gripped by this? I mean, Boris Johnson uh, confirming that the troops are going to be coming home uh, said that he was um, uh, he insisted that Britain was not abandoning, turning away from Afghanistan, while also taking all the troops away from Afghanistan. Um, is, is this sort of how how high is this registering on the on the sort of government's radar? I think it's registered fairly high, to be honest. And I think it's one of those things where if we're looking at the relationship between Joe Biden and Boris Johnson in terms of those two regimes, I think that on Afghanistan, that's one of the biggest differences of opinion. But ultimately, once America make a decision, it, I think it leads to a situation where the UK ends up following for, for practical reasons as much as anything else. But I think in terms of policy, I don't think this is the option that the UK would have opted for. I think there is actually much concern about what's currently unfolding and the sense that some of this could have been foreseen if you make that bold decision. So I think it is a cause of anxiety. I think William Hague's column is very interesting on this, which is what are the practical steps you can do once a big ally like America has made that decision. And I think looking at uh, what we can do to welcome those who now need to leave Afghanistan here is going to be a key part of this. But 
how quickly can you make those these uh, things move faster, given all the criticism in the past about how slow and arduous that process is? And does it need to be widened in terms of what's now taking place there? So I think there's two aspects in terms of the UK response now. Katie Balls from The Spectator and David Ivanovich from The Times. So you read uh, David in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Space Wars. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's turn our attention and look to the sky. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. We don't need any of that nonsense from those children's films uh, about, you know, the robot people and the big hairy man. Um, no, instead, we're not uh, talking about uh, science fiction. This is all science fact. S- Star Wars, the real Star Wars, and the issue of space defence. And how do you police the skies above our heads? Uh, since the first satellite went up in 1957, more than a 1,000 have been launched in the sky. They've changed the modern world, allowing us to do things like communicate with people on the other side of the planet or avoid traffic on the commute to work. We, but while satellites have been used in the military since the early 1990s, the last few years, the use of space for national security has become more prominent in global politics. Both the rhetoric and the number of cyber attacks has stepped up. And then throw into the mix billionaires firing things, including themselves, into space. And how do you go about ensuring that there aren't uh, conflicts? Well, a uh, committee of MPs has launched an inquiry into exactly this subject. We'll speak to the chair of the committee. Uh, in a moment. But first, let's speak to Soph Antrobus, Research Associate at the Freeman Air and Space Institute. Morning, Soph. Hi, Matt. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Times Radio. So explain the situation uh, as things currently stand, uh, the sat- sat- satellites whizzing uh, above us uh, and the risk of conflict as a result. Well, the situation, uh, I'd suggest that we're at an inflection point at the moment. The uh, space is very congested. As you said, there's thousands of satellites up there. There's over 27,000 pieces of observable debris. So it's very busy and it's becoming increasingly contested. Uh, You know, in the Cold War era, you, you know, you predominantly had the United States and the USSR as it was. 
uh, launching uh, uh, into space. 93% of launches during the Cold War were from those two countries. Now, um, the majority are actually from other nations. And of course, 90% are commercial. So it's very busy. But at the same time, militaries, modern militaries are increasingly reliant on space. They need space to, to get imagery, to do um, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance for communications. So the, uh, the unmanned, uncrewed air vehicles that we fly, for example, uh, the Reaper, that's also reliant on space. So we're in this situation where uh, the, 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 what space is, is based a sort of a critical and crucial advantage for fighting and defending ourselves, but also it, it's a critical vulnerability. And so what impact could there be if uh, a, a hostile state took out uh, a, a, a British satellite or a satellite that we uh, relied on for, in some form in the, in the UK? What impact would that have on you know, the state, but also maybe on our lives? Well, I mean, people talk about sort of how we would last for, um, without space for a day. And it's not just military capabilities that would be affected. For example, um, just, you know, our delivery uh, sort of um, food deliveries are uh, the delivery uh, sort of cyclists. They, they are actually dependent on GPS. Our supply chains are dependent on GPS. We're having enough of a problem with supply chains at the moment without losing a satellite that, that was important to that infrastructure. So that it has both civil impact, potential civil impacts, and also potential military uh, capability impact. Um, and uh, apart from uh, satellites, what else is the UK sort of uh, uh, reliance on space infrastructure? Uh, so, so basically, uh, pretty much most of uh, military activity relies in some way or other on 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 satellites because military people need to be able to communicate they need to know where they are uh, they need to know what time it is accurately uh, for all the sort of um, precision systems that militaries use uh, and we need to know what's going on and I, that there's a concept called either space situational awareness or increasingly called space domain awareness that's our ability to see what's going on in space and if we can't understand what's going on in space then we we can't react uh, in the way that we might be best need to. Uh, we have some space awareness capability, of course. In this country, we have RAF Filingdales, uh, and, and there they look out into space, and they're not only tracking space debris, but they're tracking satellites and, and potential nefarious or reckless activities by other countries. And so the ability to understand what's going on is, is hugely important because if we don't understand what's going on, then uh, and it, it's a physically distant, obviously an inhosp inhospitable environment. And if we can't see, if we can't detect what people are doing and we can't start to make decisions about their intentions, then actually we, uh, our, our military personnel can't make informed, quick, sensible, critical decisions uh, at the time that we'd like to. So, Fanchibus, uh, Research Associate at the uh, Freeman Air and Space Institute. Stay there. Let's bring in uh, with us, if you can, uh, let's bring in uh, Steve Beeching, the UK Managing Director at Viasat, a satellite communications uh, company. Hi, Steve. Hi, good morning. Uh, also on the line, we've got James Rogers, co-founder at the Council of Geo Strategy. Hi, James. Hi there. How are you? Uh, very good. Thanks for joining us, James. Uh, so, Steve, you're you're literally in the business of uh, of um, uh, 
managing these these things that are flying above our heads. What what talk us through the process of uh, sending up a satellite? Uh, how much does it cost? Um, and and then why have we got so many of them up there? Is it because when they stop working, we just leave them there, and that's why we've got all this, you know, space rubbish? Um, so I think there's a growing demand, I think, for communications across the world and the globe, particularly into these very, very difficult, austere environments. So a lot of the mega trend, if you like, of why so many satellites are going up is to fulfill the need of the globe to communicate and to explore and to do space exploration. Um, and, and the way in which they go up depends on what it is they're doing, uh, which orbit they want to go to, and all of those have different uh, values um, in which to offer the world. So I think, you know, this, this demand that's happening is being driven by, by our need. Um, and what developments have there been in technology which means that you can now uh, reach into parts of the world that were previously in, inhospitable? So I think, I think as the demand comes up, obviously it's freeing up the, the environment. I think the, the digitization of the world is starting to create brand new technologies now. So, you know, um, satellites about to go up that are offering huge capacities and, and they're what they, they call uh, digitally enabled. So now you can start to control the satellite in space. You can put software updates to them the ways in which the traffic can move in the size of the beams has changed substantially. So this, this evolution that's happening uh, at real pace is starting to change access. It's dropping price points to end users. So it now starts to compete with terrestrial services and, it, and it's available on a global basis. And I think there's now a lot of conversation around you know, how they're bringing in low orbit satellites, which is beginning to get to this conversation of these mega constellations. And, and I think this real paced conversation around how do you control those orbital slots? How do you avoid collisions? What happens when they create space debris? So I think the new technologies throw in new challenges to the world that we've got to get ahead of in advance of those problems occurring. James Rogers from Geostrategy, uh, th this problem of 20-odd thousand pieces of space junk, uh, who, who is responsible for that? Is it a sort of, is it the wild, is it basically like the Wild West? Is there any, is there any one organisation or body or something who has control or responsibility for it? Or is it just left to individual countries to say, well, you know, this is our, you know, this is what we're doing and, you know, never mind what everyone else is doing? Yeah, I think there's. Um, it, it's increasingly uh, down to individual countries to determine what they have in in space and what they send up there. Uh, increasingly, there is a, a greater amount of um, assets being sent into space because, as Sophie and Steve both said, the there's been a proliferation um, of technology and the development of technology, and we become increasingly dependent on it. For example, it's estimated that around a fifth of our economy um, by the 2030s will be dependent on space. Uh, if not more. So it can only get, I think, more congested, which is why I think the UK is now really starting to place greater emphasis on, um, on space. So, for example, in the integrated review um, that the government undertook into Britain's uh, global posture in uh, March, which was undertaken over the last year, 
um, space is really quite heavily emphasized. For example, it's mentioned over 70 times in the document, whereas other geographic regions such as the Indo-Pacific are mentioned 34 and the Euro-Atlantic or home region is mentioned only um, 15. And the government um, wants to emphasize Britain's role in space um, and render the UK a serious uh, space power to the extent that perhaps it hasn't been up until relatively um, recently. Uh, other countries you mentioned um, during the Cold War, for example, the United States and the Soviet Union were in the lead. And even France um, and China um, in recent years have developed quite substantially their own space um, awareness, their space launch capability, um, and also their overall space strategy. And you were talking about the, uh, the the Cold War and the you know we know the previous you know the space race and the tensions between America and Russia and so on. Where, where are the who's on whose side in the the, the space wars now uh, these days, or is it just each country out for itself at the moment? Well, I think if you look at what the government is saying, they're saying that the international environment, and this includes now space, it always has, I mean, for the last, you know, 50 or 60 years um, since the aftermath of the Second World War. But increasingly, the international environment is, is becoming increasingly uh, geopolitically contested. So you have um, the United States, you have China. Uh, in increasingly, they have some tensions, not least in the Indo-Pacific region, but that's going to spill over in the same way that, that it did during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States and the broader West. So the international environment is becoming increasingly competitive and antagonistic. And therefore, we, insofar as we've become increasingly dependent on space for our economic needs, we need to take this very, very seriously. Uh, and in a way that we didn't and perhaps couldn't during the Cold War, because the technologies have become cheaper um, and more abundant, and we can position ourselves more um, aggressively or more actively in, in, in this degree of competition. Uh, in a moment, we'll talk about the politics with Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee, which is looking into all of this. I just want to ask each of you, what would be, uh, if you could bend Boris Johnson's ear for, for five minutes on this issue, what, what what is something sort of constructive that Britain could be doing or the Prime Minister could be doing, whether it's investing in defences or, you know, try to convene global cooperation? Uh, it, it, I'll ask each of you, first of all, Soph Antropus uh, from the Freeman Air and Space Institute, what, what would you suggest to Boris Johnson he should do? I think, um, I mean, I think the, uh, we've mentioned the integrated review and clearly there is this increased emphasis on space. As you uh, probably have heard that um, we created the uh, Space Command uh, within the Ministry of Defence under the, uh, the, own, the ownership of the Royal Air Force, although it is a joint command on the 1st of April. Now they're, um, they're, they're there to enhance UK military command and control of space and coordinate with commercial space operations. So I think support to the, that initiative, um, you know, Chief of the Air Staff, uh, Sir Mike Wigston has said that, you know, while it's set a few hundred people working in that, uh, in that organization at the moment, he would like to see it grow to thousands. That requires the, the, the recruitment and training of, of people into space operations. So continued support for Space Command's growth allied with um, the brilliant work that I think is being done between the MOD phase and the FCDO, and perhaps Tobias would, would want to comment on this further, but that the, the space directorate level, so the MOD space directorate, Harv Smith, and uh, the Bayes space directorate are, are working together with the FCDO. And most important, I suppose, sorry, long answer to your <laughs> question, 
is is the is the continuing work uh, around space norms of behaviour. Britain is working with it within the UN very hard to improve space norms because even though if we had a big space war, uh, then norms would be disregarded. You know, after a conflict's begun. They're useful if we have them in seeing indicators and warnings and, and what people are doing. So that's my final plea, is that we continue the work that's going on in the United Nations. Yeah, you don't know that people are breaking the rules and if you don't have any uh, rules there in yeah. the first place, that's really interesting. So, uh, James exactly. Rogers, same question to you from the Council of Geostrategy. Well, I think the, the government wants to render the UK uh, a science and technology superpower. Um, this is the way in which we can compete. We're a small country, but we're a very um, innovative and very dense one. So um, in order to compete in the 21st century against much larger countries, you know, China, Russia, uh, the United States, we need to have that kind of intensity uh, in order to succeed. So therefore, I think the government needs to realize the integrated space policy that it wants to achieve and make sure that that's at the very heart of the, uh, the science and technology superpower idea. And therefore, to bring together the different components of, of research, of education, um, and also to create a kind of ethos within broader society that, that, that emphasizes uh, science and technology, particularly in space, so that we can continue to succeed and uh, evolve and develop as a nation in the 21st century. Uh, finally, Steve Beeching uh, from uh, Viasat. What would you like to see as sort of someone on the front line, if you can have a front line in space, uh, what would you like to see the government do to sort of put, uh, to step up and, ta and address these, these issues? Yeah, so I, I, I completely agree with the investment in Space Command and the director. I think it's super important. I think um, if I stood back and I said we have a space strategy, space is more than satellites and launch, it's networks, it's the incorporation, augmentation of private sector with those elements, it's cyber security. So I think there needs to be a realisation of what space means. You launch a satellite, you'll run a network for 20 years on one launch. So there's this view that space needs to invest in cyber security and AI and machine learning and all this digital backbone essence that you hear discussed. So that would be the first conversation I would have. And, and to do that, I think the strategy doesn't need to be too broad. Pound for pound, we can't compete against the superpowers. So I think it's a matter of think of the elements that most matter for us as a nation and delivering our security, pick the things we invest in as a sovereign aspect, think of the things we can augment through commercial partnerships, and, and then invest heavily directly within the UK to drive our footprint and, and, and work with allies and partners around that. But we, we've got to up our game directly in this country to deliver those networks. So that, that would be my plea um, moving forward. Well, we'll talk more. That was Steve Beeching there from uh, Vice Up. We'll talk more about the politics of all of this and the the the, the prospect of the real threat uh, of uh, space wars uh, in a moment with Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the uh, Parliamentary Defence Select Committee, which is looking into all of this uh, right now. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Times Radio Breakfast, tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. A year on from the deadly explosion in Beirut that killed at least 218 people and injured thousands more, Lebanon faces an economic crisis and political dysfunction. We'll speak to the country's ambassador to the UK. Climate change is rocketing up the agenda ahead of the major COP26 summit in Glasgow later this year. The boss of energy company E.ON will tell us why he thinks our 2050 carbon goals are a pipe dream unless we all do more. And the Prime 
Minister is in Scotland. We'll take a close look to see how he'll get on. And Times Radio presenter Michael Portillo will join Paralympian Tanny Gray-Thompson to discuss the morning's news. Times Radio Breakfast, tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Yeah, nice to have you with us. We're talking uh, space or Star Wars, if you like, and the uh, the need for uh, Britain's uh, to to step up its defence in space. Uh, space defence is something which has been investigated by the uh, Parliamentary Select Committee for Defence in the House of Commons, and it's chaired by Tobias Elwood, who joins me now. Hi, Tobias. Good morning. Um, uh, you listened to the conversation uh, that we were just having there. How concerned should we be, and especially you, I know you've been taking evidence, some uh, uh, oral evidence already and written evidence to your uh, inquiry. How concerned are you about what could, what could happen, the potential risk for conflict in space? Well, thank you for covering this subject. It's, it's an exciting, but it's also a daunting time when it comes to space. From a security perspective, uh, you know, you mentioned this uh, first satellite back in 1957, Sputnik. It was a wake-up call to the United States to say Russia was now able to spy over the US. Let's do something about it. And that led to the Apollo program and the race to the moon. And it allowed the United States to not only catch up, but leapfrog Russia's capabilities. What we're seeing at the moment is space taking over as that ultimate high ground. Go back to the Battle of Britain in the Second World War. Why didn't Germany invade Britain? Well, they couldn't control the skies. We dominated the skies. And that meant that you couldn't use ground forces underneath. Now, that you know, ultimate high ground has gone even higher. It's in space. And we touched on the importance of satellites today. I'd go further than, than that. If we lost GPS today, then it would knock us back to the 1950s. Every time you buy a coffee from Starbucks or whatever, uh, three GPS satellites are used because they have atomic clocks inside. It's not just the location that's important, it's the timing of the contract. So all the financial transactions that take place, millions of them every single day, would suddenly stop. And you'd have to get up those old carbon copier things, you know, to be able to make a, a <laughs> transaction. But more than that, and we touched on it before, all our missile systems require, you know, precision guidance from GPS. So if we're going to see a major escalation of conflict, it will begin in space by taking us out, trying to blind us in what's going on. And the trouble is there are no rules in space, apart from one. They've agreed not to use nuclear weapons. But beyond that, it's really contested territory. It's uh, it's the OK Corral. And stuff is happening up there. Weaponization of space taking place, dual-use satellites. China is launching more um, uh, rockets than everybody else put together. They've actually got uh, systems on the far side of the moon now. There is a race taking place now to dominate uh, the, the high ground. Uh, part of me wonders, well, given how catastrophic uh, the impact could be from taking out, what, one satellite? But part of me wonders why it hasn't happened before. Is everyone sort of dancing around each other at the moment, just trying to work out who is dominant in space and who isn't? Yes, I mean, there's I mean, so many variables that are taking place at the moment. Firstly, you've got the space debris piece that was touched on before. Lots of, you know, people dropped spanners back in the 70s, which are now still orbiting the Earth. Now, if that hits the International Space Station, that will cause further debris. And there's something called the Kessler effect, which was illustrated in that great film Gravity that you might remember. Um, and uh, that would end up meaning that our entire uh, geostationary orbit would just be one complete mush. So wouldn't, nobody would be able to put up satellites that will then travel into that space 
uh, as well. That's a real concern. It could happen naturally simply because we've not got rid of the space debris uh, at all. But there's also, as I say, there's a clandestine approach. You saw it during the Cold War. You know, Russia actually was able to take out satellites using other satellites which were armed, which were weaponized. China is doing the same as well, using laser techniques as well, dual-use weapons, EMP, you know, and so forth to try and fry other satellites. Uh, and it's very difficult because you can't monitor it carefully to actually apportion blame. So this is we have to be very careful of where we're going here. It's so important that Britain stays ahead in the lead and works with allies to understand and comprehend what's going on up there. And you're, you know, you've been monitoring, you've been a defence minister before, uh, you've been monitoring uh, the Ministry of Defence chair in the Defence Health Committee. How gripped by the risks of uh, conflict in space do you think the Ministry of Defence and the government are? They've really woken up to this. As I say, it would deplete our capabilities uh, so, so considerably. You know that is our, our weakness. Everything that we do from, uh, you know, the weapon systems I mentioned, but communications to, uh, you know, imagine just you losing your mobile phone. Um, how sort of, uh, you know, naked that you feel, you're unable to communicate with the rest of the world. Well, that would happen right across the military spectrum. And if that is our vulnerability, you know, why bother attacking us when it's easier just to take out our satellites and make us completely impotent in that sense? So we need to better understand what's going on there. We need to better monitor our own satellites and prove if something untoward is actually happening. And that's exactly what Space Command is now doing. It's better control of that environment there. But as I say, we still don't have any rules. There's still no international regulations. There's no Geneva Conventions that apply to space at the moment. Is that something that, that we, we should be pursuing? I mean, is that the sort of thing that you know Boris Johnson, as well as all the other things, should have had on the table at the G7? Uh, you know, the, the, when or maybe it's the UN or or whatever it might be. But but there ought to be that having those conversations with uh, global superpowers around the table and saying, come on, let's agree some rules on what we're going to do in space. Yes, and this is the difficulty. We do need to set those rules and establish those rules. The, the G7 international to-do list was enormous. You know, there are so <laughs> many plates that are spinning around the world now. I think this was just, it wasn't seen as a priority. It will suddenly expedite to become a priority when we lose contact with satellites, when some of them are damaged, and that there is plausible deniability because you wouldn't be able to portion blame. You know, the, the, the systems that are now in place, Russia has an aeroplane that can fly high enough to then fire its weapon systems and then to hit satellites. China has actually launched uh, missiles from the ground to take out its own weather satellites satellite, which was not a great plan because it then caused debris that we now need to track. So there's all sorts of things going on where the rules are not clear. It's a little bit OK Corral, and it'll be to the, the whole of the planet's detriment if we don't get these rules right. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>